Our text this morning is Jonah chapter 2. I invite you to find that along with me. The theme of Jonah, the theme of the book of Jonah, is the mercy of God. The theme of the Bible is the mercy of God. Our need of it, God's willingness to show it, and where it is located. The mercy of God is the theme of the Bible as a whole, and it is also the theme of the book of Jonah in particular. We spent last Sunday in chapter 1, where the text focused on our great need of God's mercy. There were all these people caught in a huge storm, and nothing they could do would help them. Their only hope after they tried everything The only hope that remained was that there might be a merciful God. We learned about our great need for mercy. Today, the focus, as we get into chapter 2, the focus shifts. It shifts slightly away from our great need for mercy to God's great willingness to show mercy. That's what we get to talk about today, God's great willingness to show mercy. Today we get to talk about God. Isn't that wonderful? This is one of the major reasons why we come to church, why we take time to come to an assembly like this, not just fellowship and not just singing. In addition to all those other things that we do, we come to further refine our understanding of just who God is so that we can know him as he is and be shaped by that knowledge. And this is a wonderful passage to know him as he is, to make progress toward that goal, seeing his mercy Revealed in Jonah chapter 2, which begins with probably the most startling and unexpected words of any chapter in the Bible. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Someone's alive inside of a fish and they're praying. And that's our text for today. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to draw out from this text three statements about the mercy of God. That's our basic outline for today. We're going to discover, draw out from the text three statements about the mercy of God and ask the Holy Spirit to apply those to our lives. Okay? Let's read the text. I'm actually going to start in verse 15 of chapter 1. So we can be reminded of where Jonah is, the conditions under which he's praying. Start in verse 15 of chapter 1, read through the end of chapter 2. Okay, let's stand in honor of God and his word. This is what we find in the book of Jonah. 
Jonah 1.15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Heavenly Father, uh, we, we pray that you would teach us and help us greatly as we give attention to these things. We're, we're here to look at you and learn about you. Pray that the, the truth presented to us here would both be overwhelming and beautiful. As we take a few moments to, to dwell on the, the greatest, highest theme that exists, your mercy. Your mercy toward sinful humanity. So we both thank you and come to you asking for more of you uh, to be taught, but not only taught, but changed in our hearts. Pray that you would do that work now in Jesus' powerful and beautiful name. Amen. Please be seated. The first thing that we want to notice very simply is that mercy is available. The first thing we want to notice is that mercy is available. We're talking right off the bat, first thing here about just the availability of mercy. Here is the statement that we're going to dwell on first regarding the availability of mercy. The love of God is revealed in the availability of mercy for sinners. The love of God is revealed in the availability of mercy 
for sinners. The fact that mercy is available to sinners reveals the true and glorious nature of the love of God. We have in our passage a sinner, Jonah. He has offended God just like us. He's lost in the sea of God's wrath just as we are because of sin, because of his disobedience. We learn in verse 6 that Jonah reaches the bottom. We see there the words, I went down. Do you look back at verse 3 of chapter 1, all the way back to the beginning of the account? Notice that Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and then these words, he went down to Joppa. He went down, and then keep going. And he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And then we get to the end of verse 5. There's a great storm on the sea, but Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship. See, he's been going down the whole time. There is a, um, a descending that begins at the beginning of chapter one, at the beginning of the account, as soon as he determines to flee God, as soon as he makes a decision, I'm not going that way, the descending begins. He's going down and down. And then we get to chapter two, verse six, and we read that he is, that I went down. And in verse five, we read that he's at the root of the mountains. He goes down to the land whose bars close upon me forever. In other words, he gets to the bottom He's been going down the whole time and now he's at the very bottom. He's at the place from which he does not return. And that's a great picture of where sin takes us. The essence of sin is departing from God. Anytime you sin, the essence of that sin is I'm departing from God. I'm going the other way. And Jonah is going the other way as fast as he can. And it is a going down. Our sin takes us down. It is a downward trajectory. It takes us all the way down, as a matter of fact, to the grave, as it were. Because Paul has written, Ephesians 2, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Our sin has put us into the grave. So here we have a sinner. And he finds himself in the sinner's position. Separated from God and hopeless. 
Jonah is, for all practical purposes, dead. Now, here's the amazing thing, where the love of God is revealed in all of its glory. Jonah thinks that God is done with him. And he thinks that for a good reason, right? After all, he's been defiant, he's been disobedient, he's rebelled against God, he's chosen the downward path, and now God is allowing him to experience the consequences of that. He has no expectation of mercy. We know that from verse 4. We've, we've got to take a minute and talk about verse 4. Verse 4 is, is famously difficult to translate. Something really unusual happens in verse 4. In the midst of all of this despair, we have this one note of hope at the end of verse 4. Verse 4, then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. And then right back to despair, the waters closed in over me. So we have at the end of, the, of verse 4 this one hopeful note. And we look at that and say, what is that doing there? That, that sounds like he has an expectation of, of mercy. And we're not going to go into all the particulars of the, the textual tradition and the interpretation. It's, it's very complicated. I'll just tell you what my perspective is, and you can continue to study it on your own. There is good evidence that verse 4 should really be translated at the end as something like this. I will never again look upon your holy temple. So not a note of hope, but a note of despair. And if that is the right translation, it does fit with the general flow of Jonah's thought that, hey, it's all over. I'm I'm not going back to the land of the living. Like, I will never appear in your holy temple again. You take that view, as, as I do, he really believes that God is done with him and that it's over and that there is no hope of mercy. Why would there be? What, ask yourself this question. Why would God help Jonah now? What has he done to deserve rescue? He's done everything to not deserve rescue. But what he does not realize is that by descending, he has come to the very place where God's mercy dwells. The mercy of God lives at the bottom of the ocean. God's mercy lives at the root of the mountains, in the place where the bars close us in forever. That's the nature of God's love. It comes exclusively to those who are dead and know that they're undeserving of mercy. God's love comes exclusively to those who are dead and know that they're undeserving of mercy. Honored guest, wherever you are that's listening and 
professing Christian and anyone who happens to be within the sound of my voice, please do not think this thought anymore. Banish this thought from your mind. The thought that God could never forgive me because my sin is too great. That's not true. It's not true. Your sin is not so great that God could never forgive you. I want you to understand that God only forgives great sinners. He only saves those who are at the bottom. Yes, you have offended the holy God greatly by your sin, and you are without hope. And you may feel like this is a reason to despair, and it is a reason to despair, until you remember that you're sinking down and down and down brings you into contact with the great love of God. Because after Paul writes, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, a child of wrath, he writes, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive. This, this love of God is unlike anything that we know. We have not seen its like in creation. J.I. Packer, who wrote... Knowing God, J.I. Packer, who just went to be with the Lord in July of 2020. In that classic book about God, wrote this about the love of God. It is staggering that God should love sinners, yet it is true. God loves creatures who have become unlovely and one would have thought unlovable. There was nothing whatever in the objects of his love to call it forth. Nothing in us could attract it or prompt it. Love among people is awakened by something in the beloved For example, we love beautiful people because they're beautiful and their beauty awakens a love inside of us for them. That's how it is with people. But the love of God is free and spontaneous and unevoked, uncaused. God loves people because he has chosen to love them. And no reason for his love can be given except his own sovereign good pleasure. It's 
That's the end of the quote. The sea was deep. Jonah reached the bottom of it, but he could not reach the bottom of the love of God. Because at some point in the sea, you die and you're beyond hope. But the love of God reaches past the point of death. Death is not a barrier to the love of God. Death is the prerequisite for the love of God. And so it is with you. The closer that you are to the bottom this morning, the closer you are to love and mercy, for such is the nature of the love of God. He's not far. God is as close as a calling out That's what Jonah did. That's all he did. He remembered and he called out. That's verse 2. I called out. God, deliver me. Save me. A drowning, rebellious sinner. That's it. You've heard of the sinner's prayer. How do I I come in contact with this love of God? How do I receive the love of God? That's it. Verse 2. I called out. The nature of the call is, God, deliver me, save me, drowning, rebellious sinner. And that great fish came. Because the great love of God, because of the great love of God, mercy is available to sinners. And so in the availability of mercy, we learn something about the love of God. The next thing we want to notice is something about the appointing of mercy. We talked about the availability of mercy for Jonah, for you, for me, the availability. Next thing we want to notice is something about the appointing of mercy. In the appointing of mercy, we learn something about the sovereignty of God. See, we learned about his love, now we're learning about his sovereignty. We sang this morning the words, our God reigns. God, you reign. We're talking about his reign, his sovereignty. Here's our second statement about God's mercy. The sovereignty of God is displayed in his appointing of the means by which mercy comes. God appoints the means by which mercy comes. It's his choice. The sovereignty of God is displayed in his appointing of the means by which mercy comes. And when we say the sovereignty of God, we just mean that his rule and his power are absolute that he's not bound by anything or anyone outside of his own nature. His own unchanging character. And that sovereignty over all of creation is on full display in this passage and in this book. Just think through these few things with me. How we see him reigning over all of creation and appointing. Take special notice of that word appointed. Happens all, all through the book. 
Here in, the, in our chapter that we're reading today, the Lord appointed a great fish. In chapter 4, verse 6, we'll see uh, he appointed a plant. Then in verse 7, he appointed a worm. So he's appointing the fish. He's appointing the plant. He's appointing the worm. And then in verse 8 of chapter 4, he appoints a scorching east wind. God is exercising his right to be God and rule over everything. His right to rule over all creation by virtue of being the creator. Most importantly, for the sinner in this passage, he appoints the means of salvation. He chooses a great fish out of all the options available to him. He sovereignly appoints, I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to send a great fish to save this man, my prophet, to save him from drowning. Here's what we want to understand, brothers and sisters, is that in God's economy, in the way that God does things, his mercy is always located in exactly one place. Just one. In Noah's day, that one place was the ark. It's the only place you could be and be saved. It's not Noah's idea to build the ark. God said build an ark. That's the means of mercy. In Moses' day, out in the wilderness, it was the bronze serpent. Fashion a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and raise it up. That is the one place where the snake bit people may look and be saved. That's it. Not Moses' idea. God's idea. I'm locating my mercy in that one place. And now, here in Jonah, it is a great fish chosen and sent by God. God chooses the means of salvation for man. At one time, it's an ark. At another time, it's a bronze serpent. This time, a big fish. God could have done anything he wanted, and he chose to save by means of a fish, and that was his sovereign right. Now, of course, we have to get to Jesus. Talking about God appointing mercy to be located in one place. One summer, my younger sister came home from college asking the question. It's just her and I sitting at the table. She was being very vulnerable with her thoughts, and she just said, Could it possibly be true that Jesus is the only way to God? When you think about all of, the, all of those adherents of other religions in the world, all of those devoted and sincere people, could it possibly be true that Jesus is the only way? That's a great question, isn't it? Well, let's talk about it. And let's talk about it in the context of Jonah 2. One of the benefits of talking about that question in the context of Jonah 2 is that it 
Jonah 2 helps us to understand our true position when we ask that question. Because in reality, we humans do not ask that question about Jesus being the only way. We don't ask that question from a position of security. We don't ask from a judge's bench or or from a, a research library or some safe location where we can ruminate and bring God under a microscope to criticize. Jonah 2 shows us our true position when we ask that question. Desperate and dead in the ocean. That's our position. Lost in a a sea of his wrath with no hope to save ourselves, like Jonah, knowing that we've sinned against God and that there's no reason why he should save us, All we've done is disobey, nothing to commend ourselves to him. We're sinking down and down and down, and lo, just as everything appears hopeless and we're at the end, behold, a means of salvation. Incredibly. How could it be? A means of salvation shows up at the last moment, and what would compel God to do that? So understand That the great wonder is not that God has chosen only one means of salvation. The great wonder is that there is a means of salvation at all. That's the wonder in Jonah 2. That there is one. Not that there's not more than one. That's the perspective that we gain when we put ourselves in Jonah's position. A great fish comes to him, but not to eat him. To save him. And the message of the Bible is that a great king has come, but not to judge us, even though he could, but to save us. His name is Jesus. That's the mercy of God, and it's found in one place and only one place. And it's God's sovereign right to do that. Don't be amazed that there's only one means of mercy for humanity. Be amazed that there is one at all. Be astounded that after all we've done, God would choose to save, not with a whole school of fish, but with one great one. One great one. Now, the problem remains, okay? I don't want to be dismissive of my sister's question, because it's a great question. And when she's asking that question, could Jesus be the only way in, in her mind, behind that question is the thought, if God is really so merciful, why doesn't he save more people? See, that, that's the thought behind the question. If God really is so merciful, why doesn't he save more people? And the people on her mind and many minds in this room 
those listening, are those who will die without ever having heard the name of Jesus. And where is their hope for mercy? And if I were God, or if God were as merciful as I am, so the thought goes, he would save more people or save all people. I'm going to say two things about that. First of all, we're going to talk more about that when we get to chapter 4, okay? I'm not going to major on that today, but we will get there eventually by the end of the book. Get there in chapter 4, a couple Sundays from now. Second thing I want to say is that this question is the very reason why we study the book of Jonah. What happens in the book of Jonah? God reveals his plan to be merciful to people that don't deserve it. And the human doesn't like it. That's what happens. God reveals his plan to be merciful to people that do not deserve it, and the human doesn't like it, says, I don't really like that plan. I wouldn't do it that way. Now, the interesting thing is that Jonah has the opposite problem of what most of us have. The problem most people would identify today is that God's not showing mercy to enough people. Jonah's problem is the opposite. He thinks God is showing mercy to too many people and to the wrong people. And so we have this wonderful, tension-filled, uncomfortable, question-provoking book called Jonah to address the chasm between who we want God to be and who he actually is. More when we get to chapter 4. For now, the sovereignty of God is displayed as he appoints the means of mercy. Okay, final point, final statement. We've learned something about the love of God from seeing the availability of mercy. Learned something about the sovereignty of God from the appointing of that, the means of that mercy. Finally, we get to notice the aim of mercy. The aim of mercy teaches us something about the glory of God. Here's our summary statement. Very simple. The glory of God is the purpose for which mercy is granted. The glory of God is the purpose for which mercy is granted. In this last point, I just want to notice together that God brings Jonah to a crucial point at the end of this ordeal in the sea. He'd run away. He'd been in a storm. He'd been hurled into the sea, sunk down, 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 been swallowed up. He's had three days to consider all these things, all these events. I asked a few of our students before the service, what do you think you would do if you were stuck inside a fish for three days? One of them said, well, I would hope that I had my book with me. (laughs) Isn't that great? Or at least my phone. Jonah's had nothing but time to think and to consider his God and his relationship to God and think about how unworthy he was to be saved. And yet God heard his prayer and intervened. And his final thought, which we see in verse 9, his final His final rumination is not, this is what it's not. It's not, 
boy, I must be really valuable to this mission. God couldn't do this without me. Look how much value he places on me to go and deliver this message. I, just being vulnerable, I think that's exactly what I would think if this situation had happened to me. I would fall into this trap of thinking, boy, I went through all of this, but in the end, God just could not do this mission without me, so he saved me. And we, we can easily fall into this trap all the time, um, with other things, the trap of thinking, you know, boy, I went through this ordeal or God got me through this cancer or this car wreck or this plane crash or this disease and I almost died, but God saved me. That must, that must mean that he has something really important for me to do because he saved me. So he must have something important for me. I'm sure that's exactly what I would think if this great deliverance had happened to me. I would be thinking, I just, he couldn't let one of his choicest servants go. Of course, he can't save the world without me, so he had to rescue me. And we so easily fall into that because we're so self-centered, think that the aim of mercy or the purpose of mercy is somehow centered on how valuable I am. that's true. You are valuable in God's sight, but that's not the purpose for which God shows mercy. The purpose for which God shows mercy is to show how valuable he is. And that's the crucial point that Jonah gets to at the end. And really the point of the whole book and what, what should our response to God's mercy be Jonah's last word after considering these things for 72 hours in the fish is salvation belongs to the Lord. All of it. This saving act of mercy is all of him. It's all his work. He's the reason I'm alive. I did nothing to deserve it, but because of his great love, his absolute sovereignty, the whole of salvation belongs to him. That's the aim and purpose of mercy, that God be praised for who he is. Straight out of Romans 15, right in the middle of Romans 15, Paul explains why Christ came and took the form of a servant to accomplish knowledge for the Jewish people and confirm the promises to the Jewish people and so that the Gentiles might praise him for his mercy, that he be praised for his mercy. The glory of God is the aim of his mercy. Those are our three statements. I want to, I want to just make one last big picture observation for Christians and really appreciate your patience in, in listening. I can't let this chapter go without sharing this with you. It's a really simple thing, but if if everything else we've talked about has been too high level and too theological, I just want to share this one thing because it helps me so much. It's been so personally helpful just to remember this. Very simple observation from Jonah chapter 2. Here's the observation. Jonah was at his best when he was in the fish. He does not have many good moments in this book. He has lots of bad ones. 
leaving Jonah chapter 2, please remember this along with me. He was at his best when he was in the fish. That's when he was the most humble. That's when praise is coming from his mouth. It took that ordeal to get him to his highest and best point. And listen, brothers and sisters, life is hard. And we go through seasons of great difficulty. And what I've come to do now when I'm going through a season that's really hard is I just think of it as being in the fish. I say, God, God I, I'm in the fish. I'm really low. And what I want to exhort you to is to be at your best when you're in the fish. I don't know if that helps you. It's helped me. I don't know why it takes us getting so low and so disobedient sometimes to put us at our our Christian best and our most mature moments, but it just does. And if you're in the fish right now, physically, spiritually, relationally, whatever, I just want to encourage you, you by saying it's possible to be at our best when we're in the fish, to remember God's mercy, to praise him for his mercy, to be at our high point in our greatest times of maturity when we just are swallowed up and we don't know where God's taken us. You can be at your best when you're in the fish. And if you're not a Christian and you know that you're resisting God and that you have not trusted in his one appointed means of mercy, I just want to encourage you in this quiet moment to understand that this book, this account, really does reflect your true condition, and that a means of mercy really has been appointed for you to rescue you from the storm of God's wrath. And there's only one, and his name is Jesus. And by trusting him today, acknowledging your sin before God, and trusting Christ by faith, you will be saved in a moment and glorify God forever for his mercy toward you. Amen. Father, we didn't deserve it, but you sent a means of salvation. Glory to your name forever and ever. Amen.